Hello and welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jesse Day temporarily stepping in for Jay. And today I interviewed a real fan favorite, Peter Schiff. And boy, was he ever on fire as we discuss the state of the economy, Fed policy, and much more. As always, there's a link below this video to subscribe to Jay's weekly newsletter. It's free and it talks about the psychology of investing and how to manage your mind to make the best investments possible. So go ahead and click that link below. But without further ado, here's Peter Schiff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Jay Martin Show. I'm here today with the Chief Economist and Global Strategist at Euro-Pacific Asset Management and the host of the Peter Schiff Show. Peter, thanks for coming back on. Well, thanks for having me on and, and subbing in for, for Jay. Yes, I'm happy to be here. And I want to start by bringing up a tweet you made recently where you said, if raising interest rates from zero to 5.5% hasn't returned annual inflation to a sustainable 2% rate, what difference will an extra quarter point make? Even a 6% rate is likely inadequate to the task at hand. The only question is, Will the patient die of the disease or the cure? You make a very good point because the Fed's one tool of raising rates seems completely insufficient at bringing inflation down to their target. How does this play out in your view? Does the patient die of the disease or the cure? Well, it's going to die of one. Uh, but, you know, it may actually end up dying of both. That is uh, the problem. You know, a lot of people think that the Fed has been successful in reducing inflation because, you know, it went from nine down to three. And so maybe an extra quarter point or maybe a half point will complete the journey, right? Because we're, you know, we're almost there, but we're actually miles away because the main reason that you saw that big drop from nine to three was a collapse of oil prices and other commodity prices that was basically brought about by a surge in the dollar where currency traders were starting to price in all the rate hikes. So the Fed actually already got all the bang for the rate hike buck from that move. Now, oil prices are headed back up. We're back above $81 a barrel today, um, headed higher. Other commodity prices as well. The dollar has peaked, I think, and is declining. So a headline CPI probably has bottomed out in the low threes, and now it's headed back up. Meanwhile, if you look at the core, which is what the Fed claims is more important anyway, that's still around five. And the decline in the core is far less than the decline in the headline. I mean, it's barely gone down, despite the fact that we've moved interest rates from zero to five and a half. So if, if you know, the terminal rate is you know five and a quarter i mean five and three quarters six that's not much from where we are now and so why would that actually do anything when we haven't seen a meaningful decline and also people forget that these rate hikes are in and of themselves price hikes because it's the price of credit the price of borrowing and so every business uh, that has debt is now having to pay more to service that debt, whether it's your landlord who's got a mortgage, a commercial mortgage that's resetting, or it's a business that has borrowed money to 
purchased plan or equipment and has interest rates to pay. That's just like labor costs or raw material costs. It's another cost of doing business that is rising. And so businesses then try to pass on those higher costs to their end consumer with higher prices. So as higher interest rates continue to work their way through the cost structure, you know, you've got more upward pressure. So I don't, I don't see how the Fed has really accomplished much of anything. And also, if you think about the way rate hikes are supposed to reduce inflation, and Powell will admit this when he talks, they're supposed to reduce aggregate demand by making it more expensive to borrow so that people will borrow less and they'll spend less and that'll you know, slow the economy the way they describe it. But none of that is happening. Credit card debt is at an all-time record high. The government budget deficits are skyrocketing. You know, they, they, we're on a run rate now of north of $2 trillion a year in deficit spending, and we're not even technically in a recession yet. I mean, normally when you're in a recession, the deficits double or triple, and so, but they're already enormous. And so even though the Fed has been making credit more expensive, it hasn't slowed down demand for borrowing. Consumers just are paying the higher prices, borrowing the money anyway, and spending it. So all that spending is still driving prices higher. So I don't think the Fed has made any uh, headway at all. Well, I think most people watching know the inflation numbers being released are doctored. And if we go by the shadow stats numbers, which uses the methodology of calculating inflation prior to 1980, consumer inflation is more than double what's being reported today. Powell recently said they're not going to change the target. It's going to remain 2%. But do you think they might go ahead and doctor the numbers further to eventually get to their 2% target? Well, the way they've doctored the numbers is they've doctored the CPI itself. So they would have to make changes again to the methodology of computing the CPI, which I think they may have already done that to a degree, and they may do that some more. But that's why the whole thing is ridiculous, because when they say 2%, they actually mean 4%. Because if we measured prices today the way we did it in the 1970s, 2% would be 4%. And in fact, all the years where the Fed claimed we didn't have enough inflation, which was all BS to begin with, because it was below its 2% target and we needed more inflation, we were never really below that target. We were above it the whole time. It's just that they were measuring it improperly. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to justify printing all this money to stimulate you know, the economy and to finance deficit spending and you know, to take the politicians off the hook from having to make the difficult political choices that may have jeopardized their reelection because absent the Fed printing all this money and keeping interest rates artificially low, politicians would have had to have cut spending. And and so that means that they risk losing the votes of the people who were losing their money. Uh, And so nobody had to do this because we were able to create all this inflation. But now uh, the inflation chickens have come home to roost. And, uh, you know, this is a huge, huge problem that's that's insolvable and is going to get worse. So on the latest episode of the Peter Schiff show, which I recommend everybody watching subscribe to, great show, um, you picked apart Powell's Jackson Hole speech. So what are the main points of his speech that you think investors should be paying attention to? 
Well, I mean, first of all, he had to play, uh, pay lip service to the idea that the Fed is going to get inflation back down to 2% and, and do whatever it takes, right? Come hell or high water, uh, we're going to do this. Uh, Powell did admit that we're a long way from there, which is my point. I mean, if we're a long way from 2% and the Fed is already at five and a half, you know, how are we going to finish this journey if the destination is, is, is so far in, into the distance? But I thought that the most disingenuous aspect of, of his talk is that he's talking to the nation about the inflation problem and how great a threat it is and how it is, how, so, how it's so important to the Fed, you know, to extinguish this threat. But no mention of the massive uh, fiscal stimulus that is being pursued by the White House and Congress, because you're trying to put out a fire and Congress is pouring gasoline on the very fire you're trying to put out. You, you know, you're not making any headway. What Powell should be doing is what Paul Volcker did when Volcker was in his position and he was trying to fight inflation at a time where the governments were running large deficits. Of course, they weren't large you know, by today's standards, <laughs> but they were large by the standards of the day. And Paul Volcker was you know, harshly critical of the deficits and was scolding Congress, saying, you got to cut spending because if you want less inflation, we need less government spending. We need to you know, reduce the deficit, balance the budget. But Powell completely lets Biden off the hook in Congress. He acts as if these deficits don't even exist. He's saying we're trying to reduce aggregate demand with higher interest rates. Well, the government is stimulating aggregate demand with massive budget deficits. So which is it? I mean, how are we going to have stimulative fiscal policy and contractionary monetary policy they're working at cross purposes. How are we going to make any headway? We're not. And ultimately, what's going to happen if the deficit spending continues, which it will, the Fed is going to have to choose uh, between a massive increase in long term interest rates far beyond what we've already seen. I mean, we're at, you know, what, 18 year highs or something like that, 16 year highs. Uh, the yields on the 10 year, you know, out to 30 years are, you know, 4.2 ish. But if these deficits continue and the Fed continues with quantitative tightening, these yields are going to move up to 6%, 8%. I mean, they're going to go substantially higher. And of course, that's going to have a profound effect on the financial sector, on real estate. I mean, the whole economy is ultimately going to collapse when we get a return to those type of rates. In fact, everybody believes that we're going to go back to the really low rates that we had for more than a decade. That's never going to happen. But not only are we not going back down to those super low rates, we're actually going to historically high rates. I mean, right now, they're not even average. They're still below average. But I think what the Fed is going to end up doing to prevent that from happening is reversing this quantitative tightening program that has so far shrunk the balance sheet you know, close to $8 trillion. Uh, it was almost $9 trillion at the peak. So we're getting close to a trillion-dollar decline in the balance sheet. But with these deficits, the way they're going, the Fed's going to reverse and go back to QE, and the balance sheet is going to explode. In fact, if you look at interest now, interest payments on the national debt, they've gone from 
a few hundred billion a year to seven, eight hundred billion. I think right now, interest on the national debt is the third biggest expense. First, Medicare, then Social Security, then interest on the debt. Interest on the debt is bigger than national defense. You can believe that as big as defense is, interest on the debt is dip bigger. But interest is growing really exponentially because not only do we have to pay the extra interest on the two trillion a year that we're borrowing, more than two trillion, but every year, let's say $10 trillion worth of debt matures and needs to be rolled over. Well, it's maturing with a coupon of maybe five basis points, 20 basis points, maybe up to 100, 150 basis points, depending on the maturity. But most of it is real short term. Most of the paper that's maturing, uh, the Fed borrowed the money a year ago, you know, two years ago. Well, where were the rates back then? They were practically zero. Now they're five. And so as all this debt matures and has to be refinanced at, you know, five plus, you know, if they want to do it with, you know, six month, 30 day, one year, right? If they want to go all the way out 10 years, well then, you know, but it's still in the fours compared to where it is now. So the costs are skyrocketing. I think that by the end of the year, we'll be at about a trillion dollars a year in net interest payments. And probably by the end of next year, we'll be at two. And I think interest on the national debt will then be the single largest expenditure of the nation, bigger than Medicare and Social Security. And in a few more years, it'll be bigger than all those combined, right? Because what, what happens if the national debt gets to 40 trillion and interest rates go to 10%? That's $4 trillion a year in interest. I mean, we're going to be at, at 40 trillion national debt in a few years. We're at, we're at 30, almost 33 trillion now. We're adding more than 2 trillion a year. So in three or four years, we're at 40 trillion. And by then, all that low yielding debt will be gone and it will be replaced by much higher yielding debt. So maybe it won't be 10%, but let's say it's 7 or 8%. You're still looking at $3 trillion a year in, 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 in interest payments. I mean, it, this is unbearable. We can't afford it. Obviously, something's going to break before we get to that point. So in this situation here, is the Fed ignorant? Are they helpless or are they just plain evil? In other words, do you ascribe to the theory out there that they could be intentionally engineering a destruction of the economy? Um, no, I mean, I don't think they're inherently evil, nor do I think they're smart enough to do this on purpose. Um, I think they're, it's a combination of ignorance. You know, you, you think these guys are so smart, right? Oh, they must be the smartest people because they got these jobs. No, they didn't get the jobs because they were smart. If, if they really understood economics, they wouldn't have even been considered for these jobs. These, these are bureaucrats, right? They're, they're not the smartest people in the world when it comes to understanding finance or economics. Uh, if they were that smart, they'd be, you know, running hedge funds or something. I mean, they, they wouldn't be sitting at the Fed. So these guys don't know what's going on. The fact that we ascribe some kind of like all-knowing uh, power that they actually know what's going on in the economy and that they actually can micromanage it by tinkering with interest rates, you know, and they're going to somehow, you know, in, improve everybody's uh, lives, uh, you know, by trying to manipulate the price of money and the money supply, that, that that's, that's sheer nonsense. So they're not as smart as everybody thinks they are, number one. Um, 
and you know, they went to all the, the normal universities and had the type of career path. You know, so they, they learned all this Keynesian BS. And that's how they, you know, they had the qualifications to get appointed to these jobs. So they don't really understand that much. But they're also concerned about postponing any, any pain. They're very political at the Fed, despite the fact that they claim to be independent. The Fed chairman tends to do whatever he thinks is necessary to make the economy look better for the incumbent administration. And part of that is self-serving because most of these Fed chairmen and people on the FOMC, they like their jobs. They're probably the best jobs they can get because they're not actually that, that smart. So they like these cushy jobs. And the president is the one that appoints them, whoever it is. And so they want to demonstrate that they're team players, that they're going to, you know, if whichever party is in power, we're going to do what we can to make you look good, to help you get reelected so we can get reappointed. And so I think they're looking at this massive problem and thinking, holy shit, you know, we, we can't allow the markets to try to correct these mistakes because there's so many of them. It, we're, we're so screwed up. It's like we're going to have one hell of a hangover if we stop taking these drugs now. So we're going to keep taking these drugs so we can get through the next election. Uh, and then we'll, you know, we'll deal with it after the election. And of course, when one election ends, there's always another election right around the corner. And so we never kick the habit. We keep taking more and more drugs. And so I think it's just, you know, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of can kicking until eventually there's a complete crisis. And then when the crisis happens, they just say, you know, oh, well, nobody could have predicted this. This is just uh, completely out of left field. You know, this is just a hundred year flood. There's this, you know, you know and, and that's what they did with the financial crisis, right? <laughs> and, but this one's going to be much worse. And, and what they will do is they'll somehow find a way to blame it on capitalism. That's capitalism always takes the fall. For when government screws up, they blame it on capitalism. They say, you know, we just need more regulation. That's all, right? We just need more government involvement. We'll make sure it doesn't happen again. But of course, the more government involvement we have, all that ensures is that when it does happen again, it's even worse. And so is the solution to end the Fed? In your view, does the Federal Reserve need to be abolished? And if so, how would the economy function in a world without the Fed? Well, I think we functioned much better without the Fed. And I think all countries would function much better without central banks. But if we just eliminate the Fed, and then in that vacuum, Congress just decided to take over the Fed's responsibility. And so the Treasury Department just you know, opened up a branch. Maybe they just took over the Federal Reserve's building and basically just you know, changed you know, the, the, the logos and stuff and changed all the letterhead, but did the same thing, that'd be even worse, right? <laughs> so it's like, we, we, we want to get rid of the Fed, but we don't want anybody taking over their job. So we need to return to constitutional sound money, which means we need to go back on the gold standard. And, you know, we can even achieve the gold standard and keep the Fed, you know, and that would be better than getting rid of the Fed and, 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 and not going on a gold standard. But we need sound money, whether it's uh, the, the Fed that brings that about or better, just the market. I mean, the way the country ran before the Fed, we had private banks uh, that extended credit where people would put, deposit their savings 
and it would be loaned out. There was no FDIC. There was no deposit insurance. It was a free market. So before you put your money in a bank, you did a little homework to make sure that, you know, they, they had sound financials. Nobody does any homework today because no one gives a damn what the bank does with their money. And the banks know that. So they take all kinds of crazy risks because it doesn't matter. Uh, so we go back to sound money and banking. But the way money was created before the Fed is it was gold and silver. That's how the money came into existence. It was mined. You had real money. And to the extent that you issued bills, which we had note currency that independent banks, because remember, the Federal Reserve note was originally a note. I mean, if you look at the Federal Reserve note, that's what it says, right? A $5 bill, it, it says this note is legal tender. It doesn't say this is $5. I mean, it has the word $5 written on it, but it doesn't claim to be $5. It claims to be a note because that's what it used to be. It used to be a note that obligated the government to pay you $5. Now, what was the $5 that the government was obligated to pay? It was gold. <laughs> that's what it was. Or in some cases, it was a silver. They had silver certificates and they had gold certificates, but they were promises to pay real money. Where'd the real money come from? It was mined. <laughs> so the government just couldn't create paper out of thin air. If they wanted to issue paper, they needed the real money, the gold, to back it up. And it was the gold or the silver that were the dollars. The Federal Reserve notes were the notes that entitled the bearer to receive dollars. You know, and now initially those notes were issued by private banks and then they were issued by a central bank. But the central bank was initially designed to be private. It's not part of the government. It was just a central bank that was chartered by the government, but it was owned privately. It was operated privately. And the reason for that is that constitutionally, the U.S. government couldn't do what the Fed does because the U.S. government doesn't have the authority to print money. They can't issue paper money, even if it's backed by gold and silver, because the only thing the Constitution says the federal government can do is coin money, not print it, coin it. So what does coining money mean? That means taking money, gold and silver, and making it into a coin, which is what they used to do. They used that. They had a United States mint. In fact, we still have a mint. All of the paper bills are printed by the Federal Reserve, right? or, or the, the Fed issues those notes, but the U.S. mint makes the dimes and the quarters and the nickels. The Fed doesn't make those, right? But the pro problem is there's no real you know, money in those. There's just a bunch of copper and zinc in there, mostly zinc now. They, can't even, they don't even afford the copper. Uh, but we got to go back to sound money. And, and, and then if we do that, then we rein in government spending. But the biggest enemy of sound money is the government because the government doesn't want to be disciplined by, by gold. They want to just be able to buy votes by creating inflation. Uh, and if we have to have sound money, they can't do that anymore. If they want a new government program, they've got to pay for it. And they've got to tell the voters, hey, if you want this from government, here's what it's going to cost you. Because if the, if the politicians have to tell the voters what this free stuff is going to cost, they're not going to want it because they'll know it's not free. They only want the stuff because they think they don't have to pay for it. The politicians want to keep lying to the voters to get elected, so they don't want to be on the gold standard. But the public should demand a return to the gold standard just so we can rein in the excesses uh, of government. But again, to do that, a lot of people are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they're not going to get the money they've been promised. People aren't going to get all their Social Security benefits. They're not going to get their Medicare benefits. They're not going to get their pensions because the government doesn't have the money. Now, it's not like 
there's a way to pay all this because the government doesn't have the money. So either we do it the honest way or the dishonest way with inflation. But inflation is the path that we're likely to go down because it's more politically expedient, which means everybody gets their money, but their money doesn't buy very much. You lose it to inflation. And that's already happening. And everybody is complaining about the big price increases. This is all the result of government spending and deficit spending. This is how you're paying for government. So when you go to the grocery store and you get mad at what things cost, get mad at the government because the government is the reason that the prices have gone up so much and now everything you need to buy is so expensive. Very well said. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the recent BRICS summit. Uh, a lot of gold bugs were a little disappointed because rumors of a gold-backed currency were swirling. It was said that they were going to announce it at the summit. As a result, a lot of people are writing BRICS off. What are your thoughts on the summit, and do you think we will eventually see a BRICS currency? Um, well, either the BRICS will unite around a common currency, which is backed by gold, or they'll individually back their own currencies by gold. But I think one way or another, they're going to a gold standard because that's the only real uh, legitimate way to replace the dollar. Right? They, they, you need to have an anchor. You need to have something underpinning a monetary system. Now, initially, it was gold. All the world's currencies were, were, were backed by gold. Then the United States, through Brenton Woods, convinced the world to use the dollar instead of gold, but with the promise that the dollar was as good as gold because it was convertible into gold on demand at a fixed price. And so if you held dollars, you, you held gold, but it was better than gold because you could take those dollars and, and loan them to the U.S. and buy treasuries and earn interest, yet be able to get your gold whenever you wanted it. So it made sense. The world would, would hold on to, to our paper. But when we went off the gold standard in 1971, um, you know, the dollar plunged, interest rates went way up. So when we no longer had gold backing, we had to pay higher interest rates to get people to loan us money because they knew that there could be more inflation. But the dollar, even though it was backed by nothing, continued to serve as, you know, the reserve. Well, that was also when the U.S. government was a wealthy creditor nation. Uh, we had the world's biggest trade surpluses back in the early 70s. We were the wealthiest creditor nation. Uh, and, and so, you know, it made sense. Also, at the time, you know, the Soviet Union was very powerful um, um, superpower. And so the U.S. was kind of protecting the world from this superpower uh, and the threat. And a lot of people kind of needed our protection from the Soviet threat. Uh, but none of that exists anymore. The U.S. is the world's biggest debtor nation. We're broke. We owe more than all, all the other debtor nations combined. We're running massive trade deficits instead of trade surpluses. So nobody needs our money to buy our stuff because we're not making the stuff. We're buying the stuff that everybody else makes. The Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. And Russia is a shadow of what the Soviet Union used to be. Uh, so, you know, you don't have that big threat. People say, well, what about China? China is not a huge military threat to the world the way the Soviet Union used to be. Um, and so people don't need America's protection uh, right now. They don't need the dollars. Uh, and we just showed them how dangerous it was to be beholden to the dollar through the sanctions of Russia. And so we've told the world, if you hold the dollar, you know, we got you by, by the short hairs. 
And if you, if you do something we don't like, we're going we're gonna to punish you uh, through uh, the dollar. And so people, countries don't want to be in that vulnerable position. They want to divest and de-dollarize and you know, extinguish that, that threat. So that's just another reason to do what they should be doing anyway, because the cost of subsidizing American profligacy is a burden that the world's been bearing. You know, these trade deficits are expensive for the world. I mean, it's great for Americans because we get to consume without producing, we get to borrow without saving, and we get to live a standard of living that is higher than what we would be entitled to if we had to live off of our own productivity. The flip side of that is that the rest of the world has to uh, agree to live beneath its means, to produce stuff and not consume it, to save but not borrow as much, and basically, you know, they're sacrificing to, you know, enable this whole system to continue so that we can keep printing money to buy stuff that we, we didn't make and can't afford. But when that system ends, it's a huge relief for the, the world that's been supporting it. And so they're going to see a commensurate rise in their living standards as Americans see a big, a big drop. So I think that the BRICS have an incentive to do this. You know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, what other country is going to be the reserve? I mean, first of all, they're not going to use the euro. They're not going to use the yen. I mean, Japan and Europe, they're not even part of this. Uh, but they're not going to say, let's make it the Chinese yuan or the Russian ruble or no. They, not, none of those are going to work. The only thing that works is gold. And gold works beautifully and they know it. And so gold is going to be the common form of money uh, that uh, all these countries ultimately adopt whether they create a new currency that's backed by gold or just back their existing currencies by gold, that's where we're headed, I think. I wanna to pivot to the rise of cancel culture and censorship, seemingly a disease that continues to fester in the Western world, especially with educational institutions, both in the US and Canada. We're seeing more attempts to silence any thought or opinion that runs contrary to the latest radical woke ideology. We're even starting to see debanking Nigel Farage in the UK being debanked because of his political affiliation, several other politicians there as well. It's happened to a few people in America. Um, where does this all lead? And do you think the pendulum will eventually swing the other way and free speech will prevail once more? Well, you know, it's hard for me to, to know. I think it's a very dangerous direction that we're headed in. And I think it really plays into uh, the, the, the statists' hands, you know, big government. You know, it starts at controlling, you know, speech that most people, I guess, or the majority of people object to anyway, because they say, oh, you know, you can't hurt somebody's feelings. You can't say something that may be offensive. Uh, but that's exactly the type of speech that needs to be protected. If you're going to say something and no, that no one's going to disagree with, well, then who cares if you say it? I mean, that, you know, you can say all kinds of nice things. Uh, it's, the, it's the type of speech that is going to be divisive, that's going to hurt people's feelings, that people are going to disagree with. That's the, that's, that's the speech that needs to be protected, especially political speech. I mean, any speech where you're critical of a policy, you have to protect that. Now, the government says, oh, everybody needs to get this COVID vaccine. And you say, well, no, what about the risks? And they say, oh, you can't say that. But you're, that's political speech. The government is saying you have to do something. And you're saying, 
Well, no, I think the government is wrong. If you're going to say that the government can punish any kind of dissent, ultimately you've laid the foundation for totalitarianism. Because then the government starts doing all kinds of things that almost everybody disagrees with, but nobody can criticize it, right? Because they, they've, they've extinguished the ability to be critical of government. I mean, we are a nation that was founded not only by people who were critical of government, but that but took arms against government in a violent revolution. I mean, we were governed by the British. Think about all the nasty things that we said about King George even before uh, you know, we, 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 the, the, the founding fathers put their John Hancocks on the uh, Declaration of Independence with the actual John Hancock. But, I mean, Americans say you can't even, I mean, you can't even disagree with the government and, oh, no, no, this, you know, we got to cancel you for, for questioning something. I mean, not even like taking up arms and having a revolution. Like, you know, they want to talk about January 6th was an insurrection. That, insurrections aren't where people have cell phones. You know, they're taking selfies. Insurrections are guns. <laughs> you know, you're actually, they're violent. You're trying to overthrow something, not just get a selfie and, and post it on Instagram. You know, hey, look at me at the Capitol, right? I mean, but uh, we, we have to make sure that the right to be critical of government is not uh, infringed. And so we can't try to punish people, even if it's first just through society pressure, if it's not outright government law. But we can't say, oh, no, this is important. Like with COVID, they're saying, oh, no, these vaccines are so important that we can't allow any criticism. Well, even if that were true, even if that were the case, it's still not worth it because you're, you're, you're surrendering essential liberty. And that's something you never want to do, even if in the short run it buys you some extra security. Because in the long run, you're going to lose so much more. So it's always a cost-benefit analysis. Yes, maybe the vaccines were a good thing. But you know what? Our basic rights to criticize the government are more important. And so, and if the vaccines are so important and you have the science to back it up, well, then you can silence your critics. right? I mean, if what your critics are saying is wrong, then let them say it and then show the public why they're wrong. Don't just ban them from saying it because you know what that does? That just makes it look like you can't defend your position. And your reason you want to ban your critics is because they got a point. So it actually is counterproductive. You actually validate what they're saying by punishing them for saying it. Instead, let them say it. And if they're wrong, let them make fools of themselves. Prove that they're wrong, you know, with, with free and open public discourse. I want to pivot to talking about uh, where you are allocating capital, where you think investors should be looking to preserve their wealth and find opportunity. So maybe you could talk to us about how your portfolio at Euro Pacific is oriented and uh, explain the reasons for your current allocation. Well, one thing that I'm certain of, you know, they say there are two things that are certain, death and taxes, right? Um, and maybe with AI, I don't know, hopefully death is a little less certain, or maybe we could find a way of postponing it. Uh, but taxes aren't going away. And the one tax that's definitely not going away, and that is going to be raised, because you don't even have to pass it with a vote. It's just going to, the government can raise this tax without anybody having to vote for it. That's why it's, it's so popular, is inflation. The inflation tax is going to keep going up. 
And so I want to avoid that tax. You know, I'm not a big fan of taxes. I mean, I'm, I support taxes that are necessary to support the legitimate functions of government. But 90% of what the government does shouldn't be done by the government, at least not the federal government. So most of our taxes are a complete waste. Uh, but the worst one is the inflation tax, by far. That, that tax actually does the most amount of damage. And it is the most regressive in that the poorest people pay the most. Um, so all these big, you know, the liberal the Democrats don't want to really want to call them liberals because they're not very liberal uh, in the classic sense. So the Democrats, they, they pretend they're the champion of the little guy, yet they're destroying the little guy with all this government spending that is driving up the cost of living that falls harshest on, on the little guys that they claim uh, to be the champion of. Um, but inflation is also a big enemy of an investment portfolio if it's improperly allocated. So what are the biggest losers for inflation? Well, number one would be fixed income, bonds, whether it's a treasury bond or a junk bond. Any bond has got a fixed maturity and a coupon. Inflation destroys the value of all of them. So if you're buying a 30-year treasury today with a yield of about 4.3, inflation is going to kill you. You're going to lose a fortune if you hold that bond to maturity. Those annual interest payments won't even come close to covering the loss of purchasing power. And by the time you get your money back 30 years from now, it'll be worth a tiny fraction of what it's worth today. So you might not be able to do much. Let's say you put $10,000 into a treasury bond, and in 30 years it matures, and you get your $10,000. Maybe you could buy a pack of chewing gum. I don't know. Right? But you're not gonna be, it's pretty much going to be gone. Uh, so you're just going to slowly lose your money over a 30-year period. So you shouldn't buy those bonds. None of those bonds are going to adequately compensate you. Um, but I also think a lot of U.S. stocks are too expensive uh, as far as the PE, and their earnings are going to be pressured through inflation and rising interest rates and taxes, that even though you won't lose as much over the next 30 years, let's say if you're in the S&P, as you will if you're in bonds, I still don't think you're going to get a real return that's going to beat inflation. I don't even think you'll come close. You'll come closer than you will with bonds, uh, but you're not going to you're not going to come out a winner. I think if you have a long-term time horizon and you want to beat inflation and you want to have real positive returns where your money or the portfolio delivers more purchasing power in the future than it would have if you just spent it all today, right? Instead of investing it, because that's the whole point, right? That's why we're investing our money so we can grow it. And then we'll, we, over time, we can consume more than if we just spent it right now. I think you've got to have a inflation hedged portfolio that to me is going to be a globally diversified portfolio that is predominantly outside the United States, outside of you know, the, the, you know the, the blast zone of this complete economic implosion. Yes, the shock waves are going to be felt around the world, but it's going to be greatest here at the epicenter. So, the, you know, you get further away from it, yeah, it'll, you know, you'll, you'll feel it, but it's not going to devastate you. Uh, and if you look at the global stock market, the valuations are much better. You're able to buy stocks at much lower PEs with much higher dividend yields in countries that are going to end up being the winners uh, 
from a global realignment of this you know, pecking order where right now the U.S. is on the top. Now, I don't think in 10 years the U.S. is going to be on the bottom, but we're going to be a lot closer to the bottom than the top when it comes to per capita income or living standards or stuff like that. So you want to invest in the countries that you know, you're, they're going to have a, a relative markup on their assets, on their currencies, where the people are going to have higher, not lower standard of living, certainly in relation. Uh, uh, you know, and at one point, you know, the American standard of living was so much higher than anywhere else in the world, it wasn't even close. Uh, and now, you know, you have a lot of countries that have a higher standard of living than we do now. I mean, we're still pretty high, but a lot of that is because we can survive on debt and exporting our inflation to the rest of the world. So this, this whole thing is going to collapse. But you want to have assets in countries uh, where those, those assets are going to appreciate relative to the U.S., and you also want to have exposure to the emerging markets, I think more so than you might have had in the last 10, 20 years. The emerging markets to me are super cheap in relation to developed markets and foreign developed markets are cheap compared to the United States. So emerging markets are super cheap. And those currencies probably have the most room to gain as the dollar falls. So you want to be there and you want to be in a lot of resources. You got to realize that the world has underinvested in the capacity uh, to produce real resources. And so you wanna be invested in energy, you know, whether it's oil and gas or other alternative forms of energy, uh, other raw materials, uh, metals, you know, to the extent that we use less oil and gas and more electric, well, you need copper, you need nickel. I mean, you know, you can't make those batteries out of, out of paper or, and even paper would mean you need trees. So you still need stuff. Uh, and so I wanna own the stuff Agriculture, I think, is going to be in, in, in increasing demand. So, you know, we have exposure in our portfolios and in our funds uh, to all the sectors that I believe you need to own. And you want to get out of paper into real things. You know, you want to own companies that own real things, not just pie in the sky story stocks that are hyped up, right, that are all sizzle and no steak. You know, uh, maybe there's a tech stock that does have something, but if it's trading at 50, 100, whatever times earnings, or the companies that don't even have earnings, they just trade at a multiple of their revenue. Those are not the kind of stocks that you want in a high inflation, rising nominal yield environment. Those were the stocks that worked when we had ZERP, but we're not going back there. A lot of people think we are, we can. It's like, you know, Dorothy, you know, couldn't go back uh, to Kansas, well, you know, we can't we can't go back to that Oz reality uh, of zero uh, percent interest rates. It's just not going to happen again. You know, Europe's not going to go back to negative rates, not in nominal terms. I mean, all the everybody's got negative real rates, especially if you use an honest uh, inflation measure. But you know, we've awoken from that stupor, and we're not going back. People just don't get that. That was you know just a one-time aberration that lasted a lot longer than it should have, but it's over. And the new reality is going to be high inflation, rising interest rates, falling bond prices, falling asset prices. And you know, during that 0% interest rate era, the US did the best. US stocks by far outperformed everybody else. So as the air comes out of that bubble, it's the US stocks that are gonna be the worst performers. So you, you, you gotta you know, get out of these assets, uh, uh, US stocks and bonds. And so we're doing at Europe Pacific Asset Management, we have separately managed accounts. So you can contact my representatives, uh, europac.com, uh, contact us.
and we can help build a portfolio for you that my team and I will manage. Uh, we have different strategies. We have custom strategies, depending on the size of the account and your circumstances. I also have five mutual funds that incorporate these strategies. I have an emerging market fund, a global value fund, a global dividend payers fund, a global bond fund, and a gold fund. So you can buy those funds through us, or you can buy them uh, no load through any of the major uh, or minor even uh, discount brokerage firms. So if you have a brokerage firm where you can go online and buy stocks and bonds, you can buy my funds. You know, they're all there. And then if you buy them, then I, then I manage them for you. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, either way works. I mean, if you want to have your own account, not in funds, if you don't want to be commingled with a bunch of other people, if you want your own account where we build you a portfolio and then manage it for you, then you got to contact us and you can transfer your account to us. Uh, and, you know, we can also take a retirement account, an IRA or whatever you got, we can manage it and, and, and get it into the type of portfolio that if I'm right, is gonna deliver uh, very good positive real returns. Great, well, I'll put a link in the description below to Euro-Pacific Asset Management for those who wanna check it out. Before I let you go, Peter, could you tell us about the Peter Schiff Show and where people can find that online? Yeah, sure. So Peter Schiff Show is my podcast, which I've been doing uh, for a number of years now. It, it kind of evolved out of my, um, daily shortwave radio show that was carried on about 30 or 40 uh, terrestrial radio stations. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. It was two hours a day. But that was born out of the Wall Street Unspun, which was a one hour a week uh, show I did uh, on a Wednesday. And that was all shortwave. Um, and so when I stopped the talk show, the radio show, I decided to do the podcast. And so the podcast just comes out, you know, I, sometimes I've done three or four in a week. More recently, it's more been one or two. Um, but they're generally, you know, between 40 minutes and an hour, most of them. A lot of them have been closer to an hour. I've recently gone back to the live format where you can watch them on YouTube as I do them live. So I do the podcast, it's live. And, and then after it's live, then you can listen at your leisure. We also post the podcast to uh, my website, uh, shiftradio.com. And so there, there's no video. You could just listen to the audio. I have a premium service too, where people can subscribe and, uh, and, and not get the commercials. Uh, but if you listen to Shift Radio, and if you listen to the one on iTunes or Stitch, all the different places, I think the commercials are there. But all the podcast platforms, the, the major ones, will have, will have uh, the Peter Schiff Show. But if you want to see the video, then you got to go to my YouTube channel. I think it's called the Shift Report. Just type, you know, Google, YouTube my name, Peter Schiff. I have about 500 and almost 560,000 subscribers. It's been growing slowly recently. Uh, I like to get more people subscribing, get faster growth. Uh, I've been having faster growth, although it is slowing down a bit, on uh, X, formerly uh, known as Twitter. I got 960,000 followers there, so I'm getting close to a million. But that's also good to follow me on Twitter because... I tend to tweet a lot. You read one of my tweets earlier. So when I, when I have a thought that I want to disseminate, I do it on Twitter. And in fact, a lot of newspapers, you know, on publications that used to call me up to get a quote, they don't bother to call me anymore. They just quote from my tweets. So it makes it easier. I tweet something out and then, you know, it becomes news. Uh, but if you want to get it firsthand, then, you know, just follow me on, on, uh, on X. 
but I'm also on Facebook. If anybody's still there, um, you know, uh, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, I'm, I'm on all these social media platforms and, it, you know, once you start following me, try to, you know, try to get your friends to, to follow me as well. Cause I think it's very important to really spread the word. You know, I'm trying to educate people to understand the, the, the founding principles of this country, to understand economics, money, uh, and, you know, because there's so much ignorance out there on these topics that, you know, it's important to, to get the truth out because, you know, the, the lie can travel halfway around the world right before the truth gets out of bed. So I need a little help, you know, getting out of bed and and uh, and get the truth out there. Absolutely. Well, let's get Peter to a million followers on Twitter. I'll put the link in the description below, along with the YouTube channel. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. As always, very fascinating conversation. Learned a ton and we really appreciate your time. All right. My pleasure. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.